discovery is said to be an accident meeting a prepared mind. But every story behind a discovery is different. Perhaps the idea is conceived in a light bulb moment or a brainstorming session or captured in scribblings on the back of a napkin. Here, we introduce you to scientific pioneers taking you beyond their publication and into Innovation Corner to hear the untold stories behind their discoveries. This podcast is brought to you by Biotechni, and I'm your host, Alex Maloney. Our guest today is Neil Devaraj. Neil is a professor of chemistry and biochemistry at the University of California, San Diego, where he leads an interdisciplinary research group who are asking some pretty big questions and providing some equally big answers blurs the lines between chemistry and biology. When Nobel Prize winners like Carolyn Batozzi describe you as a singularity in chemical biology, you know that Neil's someone to keep an eye on if you don't want to miss the next big discovery. Neil has been pivotal in advancing the field of bioorthogonal chemistry, or click chemistry, a term some listeners may be more familiar with. For anyone not familiar, this is broadly a set of chemical reactions that allows you to attach anything to well, anything, without any side reactions in biology. Neil was an early adopter of this concept, developing reactions that could proceed at phenomenal rates in living systems, opening doors to new applications in diagnostics, fluorescence imaging, and even in the therapeutic space. We'll leave some more info in the show notes for those of you who are inspired to read a little more about this. I was captivated by the journey Neil describes in this podcast, It's a story where he's not been afraid to step outside of his comfort zone, listening closely to the advice given by some of science's biggest names, and then applied his mindset to challenging preconceived notions around where chemistry can actually be performed. Whether it's synthetic biology and redefining what we may actually class as living, or expanding the toolbox of compounds for studying RNA, Neil is absolutely making his mark in the textbooks. And hey, we had some fun in this recording too. Make sure you stick around to the end where we play a guessing game involving some funny scientific discoveries. But now, welcome to Back of the Napkin. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to have you on. Um, I've been uh, a long-time fan of your research, so having you here in person to talk through some of your work is, is fantastic. So, welcome. Yeah, great to be here, Alex. Cool. Okay, so let's start from the beginning then, kind of where all good stories start. So how did you get into science? Did you have parents that were scientists? Yeah, great uh, question. Um, I think just from a fairly young age, I've always been excited about science, uh, starting, I think, from even my uh, elementary school days. Uh, My parents, you know, they immigrated from India to the U.S., um, and uh, my dad is a, a civil engineer and worked for city governments uh, for many, many years before retiring. And my mom was a bank teller. Um, so they weren't necessarily very driven. And, and, and I certainly didn't feel any pressure to go into the sciences. Um, but I was always very fascinated, I think, with the natural world. In fact, uh, when I was a very young child, uh, and I'm kind of surprised my parents allowed me to to do this and explore this, but I was I was really fascinated with insects and spiders, and I would actually even being seven years old would go out and uh, 
catch, uh, you know, uh, venomous spiders and uh, things of that nature. Looking back on it, (laughs) so I was asking, what was I thinking? But uh, but I think part of it was just a real fascination, right, with with the natural world. And um, so, yeah, um, when I was in high school, I was kind of really set on this idea of doing a career in STEM. And uh, for that reason, uh, I was uh, really, uh, you know, my, my number one choice for, for university was MIT, mainly because it was such a great place to do, um, it is a great place to do uh, you know, science and engineering. And I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to go into. So where did you grow up? You were in California? Yeah, I, was, I grew up in Southern California in a, uh, a town called Manhattan Beach. It's a, uh, it's a you know, uh, place quite near the, uh, the major airport there in Los Angeles. Great weather, horrible traffic. Um, yeah. So you then you went and did your undergraduate at MIT, so you go over to the, to the East Coast. Yeah, and that's kind of a funny story because I uh, actually I, I accepted the, that uh, the admission letter without even visiting MIT, <laughs> and and one of the re- big reasons was because it was the furthest place that I got into from home. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to get away from Los Angeles, despite the great weather. Yeah, I uh, just wanted to you know see something different, and and Boston is what's in Cambridge were quite different. Yeah, yeah, okay. So you um, you major then in chemistry. Yeah, I actually uh, majored in chemistry initially, um, and then I realized that if I took a few extra classes, uh, I could also double major in biology, and so I ended up doing that as well. And did you have a preference? I, I, at the time, my preference was squarely in chemistry. Um, you know, I was really inspired by an organic chemistry class I took with Dan Kemp, uh-huh. and um, you know, I, I uh, did undergraduate research with uh, Munji Buendi on uh, quantum dots and it was, you know, it was really a fantastic time and, and really, you know, encouraged me to, uh, you know, dive deeper into chemistry and, and to pursue a PhD in chemistry. So you then go on to do your PhD in chemistry. So wh- where did you go then? Where was that? So I was at Stanford University. Okay. So, yeah. um, again, I went there not necessarily with any real um, yeah. goal in mind. I wasn't too sure who I was going to work with or what I was going to work on. But during my visit weekends, I, I you know I enjoyed visiting Stanford. I I think after spending four years in the Boston area, I was kind of excited to go back to California. Um, and so yeah, I, I I I moved then to to Palo Alto. Okay, so you're doing your PhD then in in chemistry with is it Christopher Chidsey? Jim Jim Coleman and Christopher Chidsey. Okay, so actually, I had I was fortunate to have uh, two mentors, yeah. and again, it's a, it's an interesting story how that came about because I actually wrote in my um, application letter to Stanford that I, I was interested in working with a perhaps a uh, assistant faculty member, you know, to, to really maybe help someone get their lab off the ground. And I proceeded then to join the lab of the oldest active faculty member <laughs> in the department at the time, Jim Colbin. Um, and uh, it was just because, you know, one of the things that they asked you to do at Stanford was meet with various faculty and, and chat with them about their research projects. And I just had a really great conversation with uh, both uh, Jim and Chris about their research interests. And I sort of kind of really envisioned myself being able to work on these projects and, and learn a lot. And it was a really fantastic time. 
So I had a look at your some of your earlier publications. I saw you started doing some of this click chemistry then um, during your PhD. So was yeah, that- soon after the, the concept came out, um, we were very early adopters, yeah. and that's uh, really because uh, you know one of the real pioneers in in terms of the uh, the these uh, uh, copper catalyzed cycle additions. Barry Sharpless was uh, Jim Coleman's postdoc. Many years ago, in fact, Jim Coleman, at one point in his lab, had both Barry Sharpless and Robert Grubbs as postdocs. They would both go on to later win uh, Nobel prizes. Yeah. So um, Jim was very well aware of the click chemistry concept at a time when many people weren't aware of it, and believe it or not, at a time when there was a lot of skepticism about whether this would be um, valuable or um, well utilized. Um, of course, nowadays, I think no one would ever sort of uh, argue that. But at the time, um, there was some resistance. So, uh, but we, you know, for our application, which was trying to modify electrode surfaces, and, and surface chemistry can be notoriously challenging, um, we we were attracted to using these uh, click reactions, and they worked extremely well. Okay, so you finish your, you get your PhD from Stanford, uh, and then the next chapter in the book is heading to Harvard for a postdoc um, in Ralph Waisleder's lab. So this isn't this isn't a chemistry lab now, right? You've you've completely kind of uh, changed in the your... medical school, uh, yeah. Massachusetts General Hospital. Yeah, so um, taught me through Ralph this. Ralph is an interventional radiologist. Yeah, so that's a very uh, interesting story, and it was a time that was it was challenging because what happened was um, my graduate work was electrochemistry, surface modifications, um, and uh, you know we were working with with click chemistry, and so you know it was very uh, uh, exciting to start thinking about utilizing click reactions, biorthogonal reactions in living systems and in, in, in ultimately in a translational setting, you know, in, in humans. And obvi- all of this was obviously inspired by the work of, of Carolyn Bertozzi. And so as a PhD student, I was interested in trying to, to do this. But again, I had no real background in the biology. Um, and so I remember uh, applying to various labs and either not hearing anything or, or being told no, that, you know, they didn't have room. And what was really kind of a, a pivotal event was I was able to uh, to meet with Carolyn Bertozzi, actually, and chat with her during um, a visit to Stanford. At the time, she was at UC Berkeley. And uh, I kind of expressed my interest to Carolyn. And, you know, Carolyn really knew, right, who in the community was was interested in this area, these topics, and who also, I think, had the bandwidth to take on some chemists. And... Uh, she recommended that I contact Ralph Weisletter. And I contacted Ralph and pretty much almost immediately was offered uh, a, a postdoctoral position. And, and I went to Ralph's lab, again, with a real goal to, um, to yeah, really just take a, a deep dive into the translational area. Uh, to, you go to a medical school, go to a hospital even, and think about, okay, how can um, chemistry be used to have an impact in a tra- more translational setting? Uh-huh, sure. Okay. Um, so this would have been 2007, right, that you go, uh, and Carolyn had published that you could do this bioorthogonal chemistry with the Bertozzi-Staudinger 
uh, ligation in uh, animals. So was this kind of, um, I see kind of the first publication when you're at Harvard was development of this kind of tetrazine for live cell applications. Was this kind of um, inspired by, by that work then? Oh, absolutely. And also, I mean, I distinctly remember when, when Carolyn came to Stanford and I met with her, she was discussing the, the now seminal work where they used azide cyclooctine chemistry to, to label glycans in, in zebrafish. So definitely, yes, this was really, uh, you know, the inspiration um, and, and, and with the thinking that, okay, can we do, you know, reactions now in, in humans? And, um, you know, what I think eventually led to the, the tetrazine chemistry was sort of the realization that, you know, Ralph, one of his real um, uh, 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 key uh, areas of strength, right, is in imaging, molecular imaging, radiology. In fact, he's an interventional radiologist. And so we were thinking about ways in which we can apply bioorthogonal chemistries, if you will, to imaging agents. And oftentimes imaging agents are at very low concentration. So we started thinking about, okay, you know, just back of the envelope, what kind of kinetics, what kind of, you know, rates of reaction do you need to get very, very low concentrations of molecules to react with each other and, and have the reactions complete with reasonable efficiency? And we quickly realized that you really have to have very high rate constants. Um, you know, ideally thousands or higher per molar per second to get really good efficiencies if you want to work with, you know, micromolar or lower concentrations of reagents. And that uh, caused us to start thinking about, okay, what other kinds of chemistries, particularly cycloadditions, could, could be utilized that would be, you know, catalyst-free, that would occur spontaneously, that could also potentially occur very rapidly. And that's what drew our attention to the tetrazine cycloaddition, which there had been this, um, you know, kind of large body of work done in physical organic chemistry looking at the rates of reactions between tetrazines and um, olefins, uh, dienophiles, particularly strained uh, dienophiles like transcyclooctenes, cyclopropenes, norbornenes, and, and that's sort of what led us into that uh, into that area. Okay, so you spend um, then your time doing your um, postdoc at Harvard and get to 2011 and you move to UCSD, so um, to be an associate professor. So how did... How did assistant professor. Assistant, assistant professor, professor. Yeah. apologies, yeah. <laughs> yep. So how did, how did that kind of happen? What was the, did you want to, because obviously now you're going back to the to the West Coast, was there kind of some, some tie to there? Did you feel like you were far away from home? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's an interesting process, right, when you're um, looking for your independent position. So, you know, you send out massive number of applications and you, you know, you get interviews at a handful of places. And so I was, you know, I was, I was fortunate to get interviews and offers at a few different places. Um, but yeah, uh, growing up in Southern California and, and then, and then uh, visiting UC San Diego, I was, it was a very, very attractive location particularly for the kind of work that I wanted to be doing in chemical biology um, and also this sort of um, eventually what would become a major part of our lab is this, sort of this, this um, interface between chemistry and biology and, and living and non-living systems. Um, and so UC San Diego, in addition to being just a fantastic place to live, I mean, San Diego is an amazing area. Um, at the time, you had, you know, these, these real... Um, uh, you know, excellent uh, research groups like Roger Chen's lab, 
who had you know pioneered the development of of tools and imaging agents for biology. And so that was really one of the great things about stepping into UC San Diego is you never had to explain to people, okay, why is it important as a chemist to develop tools for biology? Okay, Ro- Roger Chen was there. Like no, no one, no one needed that explanation that this was a valuable thing to work on. Um, and additionally, historically, from you know, eventually the work that our lab started doing at um, asking questions about, for example, artificial membranes, synthetic cells, origin of life. Um, one of the real founding faculty at UC San Diego, Stanley Miller, from the famous Miller experiment, uh, looking at sort of the origin of life. And so again, there was a sort of this really interesting history there. Yeah that, um, you know, supported the research proposals that I wanted to work on. Okay, so let's go into some of these research areas of interest then. Um, we've discussed a bit already about these uh, tetrazine cycloadditions, um, but as you touched on there, uh, a huge thrust of your work is looking at these artificial membranes. And, you know, this is completely out of my wheelhouse, but, you know, having read it, it's really kind of blowing my mind what seems to be possible now. So can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing here with these synthetic cells? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this just, it stems from a, a, a just a genuine fascination interest with um, this sort of, I think, gap in our knowledge in biology, which is we know, you know, quite a bit, I think, about the structure and function of, you know, the various molecules of life themselves, you know, DNA, proteins, lipids, but then how these things come together to form, you know, what we would say is living matter. This is in many ways still virtual black box. And so I think there's a lot of really interesting science there. And as a chemist, I think this is, this is fascinating. You know, how does chemistry become biology is a really fascinating question. Um, and so back now to my, my, my PhD days, uh, we had done a lot of work with self-assembly and looking at self-assembled monolayers. And I was always very fascinated with um, uh, uh, self-assembly concepts. And so, uh, when I was starting to think about, well, how can we, how could we as a lab do something to start approaching this really, really challenging, you know, big question in science, uh, we, we got really interested in the idea of, well, could you start generating compartments and lipid membranes? And, and as a chemist, I mean, one of the really fascinating things I think about life and cells is that not only is there amazing self-assembly occurring, but the cells are actually in situ producing the units that are self-assembling in real time, you know, at the same time, simultaneously to the self-assembly itself. And so we started thinking about ways in which we could use chemistry to spontaneously generate lipids, you know, de novo, that would then go on to immediately self-assemble and form membranes. All of this happening in water. So I, I wrote down the, um, I think, a, a key publication here from you, which was self-reproducing catalyst that drives repeated phospholipid synthesis and membrane growth. Like reading into this, it was fascinating. So, and it, it seemed almost kind of ironic, right? Because you've you've pioneered some work around the tetrazine um, ligation, which allows you to do this in kind of li- live cells. Now you're looking at kind of uh, creating a new kind of cell. And the whole reason, you know, well, one of the reasons for using tetrazine is, you know, you don't use copper, which is toxic to cells. Now you're looking at creating cells that actually need copper, right? So that's I find that kind of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think you can start, you know, cells and in and, and biology, right, one of the key um, uh, 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 components that make it all work are the idea of having catalysts and enzymes. And so you can view, you know, copper in that case as like a very, very simple uh, primitive catalyst, if you will. And I think what, um, 
is interesting about that work and, and something that we still think about quite a bit is the idea that, you know, can you uh, take a autocatalyst that is a catalyst that can make itself over and over again and couple that to the formation of other functional building blocks that would be useful for a synthetic cell, like a, like lipids to form a compartment. And in theory, if you start feeding those systems um, very simple precursors, it could basically go on and on, grow, regenerate over and over and over again, because not only are the lipids being made continuously, but also the catalyst is able to make itself continuously. Um, and so I think that's a really kind of interesting concept and something that to this day, we're still thinking about ways in which we can achieve that um, in the lab and eventually do it in a much more complex way, which is, you know, of course, living systems are extraordinarily complex mm. and and also um, get, you know, over time, over evolution, they appear to get more complex. So what's the next stage then? You've got cells that are able to kind of reproduce. Now, what do you kind of put in them? Do we need to have, you know, synthetic organelles? Do we need... Um, yeah, what's, what's yeah, next? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think one of the uh, big next things is, uh, you know, tr transport, transport systems. So how can, if the cells need these simple metabolites to, to keep on growing and dividing, um, how do they get those to come in? And, and again, they sort of spontaneously generate systems that would allow it to become even more efficient in terms of, you know, one of the really, again, hallmarks of life is the idea of sort of Darwinian evolution and competition. Mm -hmm. And so you could imagine, well, if one synthetic cell has a, a, a more sophisticated transport system, it could grow and divide at the expense of others. Yeah. Um, another element is asking, you know, how could you have uh, information and information um, transfer, a heredity, if you will. And, um, well, when we think about that, we obviously immediately jump to DNA, RNA, things of that, you know, nucleic acids. But it's also kind of interesting to start thinking about, you know, is that really the only way are there other ways you could have um, information that would be uh, memorable, if you will, to these systems? Um, and so one of the things we've thought about and, and, and others have thought about quite a bit is the idea that, you know, could lipids and the compositions themselves um, uh, have some kind of um, information inherent to them? And, you know, can you show that experimentally is a real challenge, but it's, I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I can't even get my mind around that, but yeah, I really look forward to seeing um, what happens there but this this idea you say of kind of like evolution and you know being able to create um, a synthetic cell that's capable of evolving I've got this kind of really crazy idea in my mind that you know you could have this cell you could um, just stick it on a rocket to Mars or whatever it goes off there it's capable of then evolving from selection pressures and then I don't know we come back in a few billion years and we see uh, <laughs> well see I mean happening. I think one of the big challenges there is and it's a it's a great thought experiment but then then you have to say, well, okay, but that cell then has to be able to take uh, inputs or resources that would be present on Mars. Yeah. So now, I think this sort of the current state of the art in the field is many folks, and in fact, I just, as you know, um, was at a really fantastic Royal Society meeting on uh, essentially synthetic artificial cells. And, you know, a lot of us are, are working in this area and the inputs tend to be still pretty complex. So example, the, the paper you just mentioned, the inputs were still these synthesized lipids. These aren't things you would just find naturally laying around. So if you shot that cell into, Mar into Mars or wherever, it's not really going to do anything because it needs a chemist sitting there yeah. and synthesizing <laughs> these things and, and feeding them. Yeah. But I think one of the real sort of, um, you know, uh, 
aspirational goals, if you will, is to start building synthetic cells where you could take really simple precursors. I mean, ideally, you know, light and carbon dioxide and you have generation of, you know, building blocks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was going to be kind of my next question really was how could you create these synthetic cells for something uh, useful? Like what is the, what is the end goal here? If there is one. Yeah, I think, you know, for me personally, and why I got into the area was not necessarily to try to create something useful. I always believe that there would be something useful, but whether that would be in five years, 10 years, 20 years, is not clear. But more immediately is sort of the, the fascination with the basic uh, science and, 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 and the sort of very, very fundamental chemical biological questions. But that being said, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that there are going to be uses. And in fact, um, there might be happening right now. I, I think one area that um, is really exciting and obviously has had a huge application is um, lipid nanoparticles. And so you start thinking about what these lipid nanoparticles are. Well, you know, they contain uh, lipids. They have nucleic acids. Um, you know, you start you know thinking, well, they kind of start, you could call them sort of a synthetic virus, if you will, or a synthetic... They have sort of analogy to some of the kinds of systems that people are developing in the synthetic cell community. So I think one, I think, application that's on the horizon would be, I think, for, for delivery purposes. Mm. So thinking about these synthetic cells as interesting ways to deliver biological payloads um, is, could, could be something that would be really um, interesting to develop. Yeah, yeah. And maybe we can use that as a segue then, talking about lipid nanoparticles and delivery of kind of RNA to your work in the RNA space then. So uh, now kind of completely changing to a sort of a different area is work that you're doing um, and I've kind of highlighted one of the key publications here which was um, yeah this site-specific covalent labeling of RNA by enzymatic transglycosylation uh, so this is obviously where kind of a mouthful when you hear yeah. it read back to you but yes <laughs> this is where our paths obviously initially crossed when we met last year in um, San Diego and you know, an area I find hugely interesting as well. So maybe you could give us a bit of a um, description and background into into this. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you already sort of discussed how, you know, I, I started my lab at UC San Diego. And, uh, you know, we were already very interested in general in bioconjugation chemistry, having, to, having worked on tetrazine chemistry, having worked in click chemistry, having thinking about interesting ways to connect biomolecules together. And in addition to UC San Diego having, you know, this really great history in, say, origin of life and, and, and green forest and protein, it also has a really uh, core strength in RNA biochemistry. And so uh, at the time, I'd never really even worked at all with, you know, RNA. You're like, uh, I've got to do this, yeah. But but I was I was actually my, my, my neighbor, you know, it's, it's interesting how, your location and, and, and your surroundings can really influence your science and the research. And so um, where my lab was at the time, my neighbor, um, uh, is a professor in biochemistry, Simpson Joseph, had uh, you know strong interest in RNA biochemistry and basically just kind of encouraged me to start thinking about, as a bioconjugation chemist, why don't you think about developing new tools for, for manipulating and modifying RNA? And so, you know, I thought that was, you know, quite interesting. And, um, you know, I, I was following uh, work in the RNA field, particularly because many of my colleagues were studying RNA. Um, and, you know, looking at 
many of the tools that were out there to modify, manipulate RNA. I mean, there were, there were fantastic things, right? Molecular beacons, aptamer uh, systems, uh, RNA binding proteins. But as a chemist, and particularly someone that had been working in sort of um, this various types of ligation chemistries, one thing that struck me is that there weren't very many ways to covalently label the RNA. And so, you know, we started thinking, and again, I mean, this, is, this seems kind of naive, but we just sort of thought, well, without even really thinking too much about it, you know, what would this, what would an ideal, you know, RNA labeling system look like? So we started thinking, well, you know, we'd want it to be a covalent linkage, you know, minimal modification, um, be able to recognize a, a minimal structure of the RNA as a recognition element. So you didn't have to append a huge, large RNA thing onto your RNA of interest. Um, you know, you want it to be very flexible. You'd want it to be able to, you know, label not just fluorophores for imaging, but, you know, maybe biotin for affinity labeling, um, other peptides perhaps. So, you know, you, you don't really want to be sort of um, locked into one type of thing. And so, yeah, we, we just started thinking about that. And, um, and it took time and it had more and more discussions with folks. And, you know, again, being surrounded by my colleagues that knew a lot about RNA, um, the suggestion was, well, why don't you look at um, what nature does with post-transcriptional modifications, particularly with tRNA? So this was completely new to me at the time. But, you know, I started reading into it and I realized that, wow, yeah, tRNA is very heavily post-transcriptionally modified. And as such, there's a huge array of enzymes in nature that can modify tRNA covalently. And so, um, you know, I started looking through these enzymes and started thinking, well, would it be neat? It would be kind of neat if we could take one of these enzymes and sort of hijack it, if you will, to label an RNA of interest covalently with a real functional unit like a fluorophore. And, you know, of all the sort of modifications that are out there, one class of modifications really uh, stood out to us. And those are these transglycosylases, these tRNA transglycosylases. And these really, really fascinating class of enzymes. And that's kind of what led to this, this work that you were talking about. Yeah. And it's been, you know, fantastic to see some of the applications that you have now applied this to. Um, I mean, the paper recently this year on applying it to the CRISPR-Cas9 system, I think is you know, a fantastic example of how this, this can be used. And, um, you know, it will be really, you know, I'm really keen to see how else this, uh, this gets used. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's kind of interesting about that story is that when we, when we initially um, started thinking about using these transglycosylases, um, which normally um, what they do is they... Uh, essentially, you know, remove a guanine, they, they break the glycosidic linkage in the RNA, they, they, they switch that base for another base, and the bacterial versions of these enzymes switch it for a um, bacterial metabolite called pre-Q1. And so initially our thinking was, well, let's make analogs of pre-Q1, and then, well, perhaps we're going to have to, you know, evolve or mo modify or manipulate the enzyme so it can accept these analogs. And to our, you know, uh, delight, it turned out that you didn't have to modify the enzyme at all. The enzyme's promiscu promiscuous enough, and if you design your pre-Q1 analog correctly, it can actually just accept it directly. And so you can take now, the, our initial work showed things like fluorophores and biotin, um, could be directly accepted by the enzyme and, and, and covalently attached to your, to your RNA of interest if you append a short recognition element. Can, as small as can be 17 nucleotides. But 
over the years, and I've been asked this question all times, like, you know, what's the limitation? You know, how big of a thing can you append? And honestly, we really have not done a good systematic job of, of looking at that. In fact, you know, so it actually kind of remains to be seen. Quite a few different things we've worked with have all been, you know, appendable, if you will. And um, so uh, I think that's something actually we're starting to think about looking at a little more systematically now. You know, if you take large polymers, for example, of different molecular weights, at what point does the enzyme stop working or does it stop working? Sky's the limit, right? For, uh, yeah, yeah I kind of view it nowadays like RNA glue. I mean, mm. you know, you can, you can put um, whatever you sort of want now covalently onto an RNA of interest. And I think that really is exciting, particularly for um, the, the, the new folks that join the lab and start working on this project is you can really kind of let your imagination go wild a little bit yeah. and dream up all sorts of interesting sort of applications and ideas. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of, this podcast, Neil, it's called, we call it back of the napkin. Um, the idea being that, you know, when you come up with ideas and inventions, it can sometimes be, you know, in a place where, you know, you're close to a napkin and that's the easiest thing to sort of scribble down your idea on and capture it on. But, you know, it can be a metaphor as well. So, you know, I'm interested to hear, like, you've come up with some fantastic discoveries. Like, how do you, and you've talked already through how you kind of systematically put some of these ideas together. But when you're sort of sitting there and kind of thinking, how, how are you doing that? Are you sitting there with kind of your group? Is it kind of, um, you know, something that just kind of pops into your head? Like, how, what's your thought process? What's the creativity process? Oh, that's, I mean, it's a great question. I, mean, I think it's always a little different, but I think, um, a lot of times it starts with actually sitting in a seminar and hearing something. It could be tangential, but it, it can sometimes spark an idea or think, oh, you know, I really didn't think about that. And oh, I didn't really realize that was a problem. And oh, how could you solve a problem? And a lot of times it comes with just talking with colleagues. I think that's been a, a recurring theme, I think, through a lot of these ideas. Having really great colleagues that are accessible, that you can chat with, that, um, often are in different disciplines or have different expertise so that, you know, you can, you can gain sort of windows into areas that you may not be necessarily so familiar with, which is often for me a, a, an issue. Um, and one of the reasons, again, why I joined UC San Diego was I was able to join the biochemistry um, division, whereas, and, and one of the reasons I was excited about that is, you know, I hadn't really been trained as a biochemist, but I wanted to work and apply sort of the chemical tools and chemical know-how to biochemistry. So I think that's important. And then what often happens is um, there is this period of um, uh, uh, sort of like just thinking about the, uh, the, the concept and idea versus doing. And so, you know, you may have a, an idea, then, you, then I, you know, I think the first thing you do is you go in the literature, you try to see, okay, what, what's been done, right? You know, what's, uh, yeah, what... what What's the closest thing that's been done to this idea? Um, um, you know, and and then I do often then you know, chat with group members, you know, get their take on it, and then sometimes it can it can take a while. I mean, I think I I believe like with the with the RNA tag work, this idea of looking at these uh, transglycosylases, I think we I had this idea rattling around for almost a year, mm-hmm. um, and you know the other. Thing that we often don't talk about is also making sure that you know you have the right people at the right time. So you know who wants to actually work on this idea, who's going to be excited to work on this idea. And I was fortunate that we had a really great postdoc at the time, Seth Alexander, um, who had come from Alana Shepard's lab, um, and you know he's really excited about this idea as well. And that's how it all sort of came together. Cool. Um, okay, so 
One of the next sections we've got here is um, scientific leaders, and you've, you've mentioned some of these, I think, already. Um, but who have been the scientific leaders who have been kind of instrumental in your your career, like uh, that have helped you kind of get to where you are now? So yeah, I mean, absolutely. We already chatted a little bit about her, but Carolyn Bertozzi has been a real inspiration, and um, and you know, it's, it's also been extremely supportive. Um, uh, one person we didn't chat about, but it's kind of related to this transition between my postdoc and my independent career is uh, Jack Shostak at the Mass General Hospital. So I was very fortunate that he was, um, at the time, in fact, I think he just moved to Chicago, but he was working um, a couple floors above my postdoctoral lab, actually. And so at the time when I started thinking about, um, you know, when, when you apply for independent positions in the U.S., you uh, have to put research proposals in. And so you know, I remember, you know, trying to develop these proposals, thinking about this interest in lipid membranes and artificial membranes. And, you know, I sent him an email and, you know, I just figured, well, he's, he's right there, you know, it'd be, be really great to sort of pick his brain and think about what, what you know, given what he's done. And he had done some really, he's done really, really inspirational work in the field of origin of life and, and looking at simple uh, protocells, if you will, um, really beautiful work, um, showing that protocells can grow and divide. And so, um, yeah, I, I sent him an email and he was happy to meet and chat. And again, that was, that was really, um, uh, 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 a great experience. Um, and, and been able to, you know, see him at meetings and chat with him. And, and, and so that's been really, really nice. Yeah. Um, I saw a, well, there was a quote from, from Carolyn, um, Batozzi and, uh, she described you as a singularity in the world of chemical biology. And, you know, I can't really think of any higher praise than from someone like Carolyn, obviously one of the winners of this year's Nobel Prizes. That's, uh, you know, that's fantastic to see. So do you speak regularly with Carolyn? Um, yeah, uh, at meetings and, and, and often talking about bioorthogonal chemistry and new directions. I mean, I think one of the, another sort of highlight, um, was and there was quite a bit of pressure, I think, on some level too. Is uh, you know, Carolyn, among the many, many amazing things that she does, she also um, you know uh, uh, is in charge of ACS Central Science, which is a fantastic journal. And a little while ago, um, she asked me to uh, write a uh, perspective article in ACS Central Science on the future of bioorthogonal chemistry. <laughs> And I, and I and I was, was a little bit of pressure, you know, yeah. to be asked. Uh, like, I'm not but, giving uh, away all my secrets. <laughs> no, that I mean, you know, uh, you have the sort of the founder of, yeah, the, of the, the field and yeah. term. Yeah. So, I, and so uh, but I think it was a really, um, uh, you know, uh, an interesting experience to really sit down and think about, okay, where, you know, from my perspective at least, you know, from one person's opinion, where, you know, where can the, the field go? go. And that I think that was published a few years back, and I think it's already. Um, I mean, the field has just gone forward so far. Uh, I think it's already become dated. Mm, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, perhaps a new new one needs to be written soon. I, I but, saw uh, that you've got like the crystal ball, haven't you, with the uh, the different <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> handles on? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've seen this kind of um, circulating again. Um, yeah, very good. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that were pointed out, and this is actually another uh, area that. Uh, you know, we were quite interested in the Mass General Hospitals, the idea of, you know, delivering therapeutics and, and imaging agents using um, so-called pre-targeted approaches um, with tetrazines. 
And I mean, now you have, uh, you know, companies that have raised significant amounts of money looking at this. And, and, and some of these, and one of these companies in particular has taken this to clinical trials. So, this yeah. Shasky, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, that's amazing. And they're in phase one, two at the moment. So yeah, it'll be, yeah. I, um, I was reading the CNN article on that. Yeah, fantastic to see. Uh, okay, so challenges. Uh, no journey seems to be kind of free of challenges or hurdles. So have there been kind of particular challenges or hurdles in your scientific career so far that you've had to overcome? Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of touched a little bit on it. I think it can be, you know, really um, instrumental to to work between disciplines, to, to jump into new areas. I think it's super, super rewarding, but it can be very challenging too because we do, I think, somewhat silo ourselves in academia. And so, um, you know, uh, there are sort of cliques. And so when you start, you know, departing from those cliques and try to re-enter, it can be challenging. Um, and also the cultures, you know, trying to get exposed to these new cultures, like, for example, the medical school was a little bit of a jarring experience, very, very different culturally. Um, you know, th- th- this can be challenging, but I think it's worth it. I mean, you know, um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think my, my message to those who are thinking about doing it is, yeah, just to be patient. Um, someone told me a long time ago, actually, actually the late Richard Lerner told me this a long time ago. He said, you know, um, and at the time I was, I was very young and I was very, you know, uh, just had been doing chemistry and thinking, okay, you know, uh, Oh, I want to jump into this new area. I want to do translational work. You know, like I can do this, right? And he was sort of telling me, well, he often thinks it's good if you pick something that's sort of tangentially related to what you're already working on and slowly move into this new field. And, you know, I think looking back on it, and that's kind of sort of what I did, and I think that's not bad advice. You know? Yeah, sounds like great advice. Um, okay, so we're kind of coming towards the end of the podcast, but you know, for something different, we've got a uh, something fun to finish feature here, which is a little kind of uh, guessing game centered around the IG Nobel Prize. Are you familiar with the Oh, IG the IG? Name? Yeah. Yes. I, <laughs> remind me again exactly what the IG uh, is for. So th- this is a satiric kind of award that's given to 10 studies every year um, for science that makes you uh, first laugh and then think there's been some really kind of Good. And it's, you know, it's very prestigious. It's awarded by Nobel laureates at Harvard. And then I think they go over to, uh, to MIT to give, a, to give a lecture. So the premise of this game is um, I have got two studies here. One of them formed the basis of an IG Nobel Prize and another one didn't. So you have to guess which one of these okay. is the recipient <laughs> of the award. Okay? Sounds uh, and you'll have to give us your workings as well as to kind of how you get to your okay. answer. All right. yeah. Okay. Um, so number one then was a study that looked at the effect of having Christmas dinner with the in-laws on the gut microbiome composition. So that's number one. Uh, and the second one is a study looking at the scientific validity of the five second rule. And this is the, of course, the universal rule for if you pick food up off the floor and eat it after five seconds, you'll, you'll die. Um, (laughs) so one of these has been awarded the Ig Nobel prize. And we'll kind of go into a little bit more about about them both after. But which one do you think it is? I, I my my initial instinct is to go with the five second rule, um, and the reason is I think that I mean to me that already sounds very interesting. I mean, everyone who hasn't heard of the five second rule, right? And 
Uh, <laughs> when I was younger, it was yeah. often invoked. And so I think <laughs> that's something where, you know, um, I think it's important in science in general to have something that, you know, actually uh, even the public can understand the importance of it. I mean, this is, like you said, a sort of a prestigious, you know, prize. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking that would probably generate a lot of interest. But uh, that's what my, that would be my guess. Okay, uh, and you're spot on, actually. That oh, yeah. is, uh, is completely <laughs> correct. You know, there's pages on Wikipedia of kind of about the five-second rule, and even MythBusters have kind of uh, have looked at it. But um, yeah, so this was awarded in 2004 um, to Gillian Clark from the University of Illinois, uh, and that she got the Ig Nobel Prize in Public Health. So, and, and actually, the the outcome was. That uh, so she was dropping food on kind of just public flooring and uh, found that there seemed to be no contamination. But um, when dropping it on a tile that was kind of laced in E. coli, that obviously did transfer. Um, I think you know we should say sort of jury's still out and it's probably safest to just not eat any food that's fallen on the floor. But um, but yeah, I need to tell this to my (laughs) one year old. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, exactly. but then, yeah, the, so the other study as well, maybe Ig Nobel Prize worthy, I think. So this was um, some scientists who looked at the effects of uh, having Christmas dinner with your in-laws on the microbiome composition. And uh, they show that the it's negatively effective of a, as a species of rheumococcus is, uh, is decreased, which is supposedly involved in. Uh, psychological stress and depression. So <laughs> I have a feeling these scientists just wanted to get out of their Christmas dinner. So, uh, with the Indians, so. Um, okay. So lastly then, Neil, before we kind of sign off, how can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out? Um, they can Google my name and yeah. I have an email address at uh, UC San Diego and I'm happy to receive emails. Awesome. Yeah. And we can include kind of anything in the, uh, that we've discussed in the show notes, uh, of this. So, um, yeah, that's great. And you don't, you don't have Twitter. Is that right? Nope. No, no but, uh, yeah, but I'm have my email and yeah. I'm, I'm happy to always as, as many people constantly yeah. online and checking. So yeah. Okay. Um, and very lastly then, so Kind of as you know, this podcast is called Back of the Napkin, and we ask every guest to come on to leave us a little um, message that's personal to their scientific journey. So before you leave at some point today, I'm going to get you to kind of leave your message and kind of keep that then in the in the archives of guests who have, have been on the show. Sounds good. Thanks so much for being on, Neil. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Back of the Napkin. To hear more stories of innovation and discovery just like this, subscribe to Back of the Napkin on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends, colleagues, or lab mates. Back of the Napkin is made possible by Biotechnique, where science intersects innovation. Biotechni is a supplier of high quality and innovative tools for life science research, therapeutic manufacturing, clinical diagnostics, and more. They encompass brands like R&D Systems, Tokris Bioscience, Novus Biologicals, Protein Simple, Advanced Cell Diagnostics, Exosome Diagnostics, and a surgeon to name some. To learn more, you can visit the website at biotechni.com. That's bio-techni.com. Dot com.